Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Some time ago, I saw a reasonable exchange on Twitter, of all places. Mind you, this is from memory, so the accuracy is probably a little bit iffy. One person posited a perturbing hypothetical. If we accept the uncanny valley as legitimate, and the uncanny valley is the concept that anything human-like that imperfectly resembles an actual human being provokes discomfort or even revulsion in human beings. If that theory is legitimate, then it's there, built into us intrinsically for a reason, which, according to the initial post, would imply that there was something in humanity's past that tried to pass itself off as one of us, just barely missing the mark, and that we had cause to be wary of it. Very quickly, someone else pointed out that this thing that is close to human but doesn't quite look like us and certainly doesn't behave like us, and that should inspire concern, could simply be a corpse. In fact, if you were to do so little as to just view the Wikipedia entry for The Uncanny Valley, you would see a chart that puts a corpse in the second deepest dip of the valley. The only thing below it a zombie, so a moving, walking corpse. Now, that chart isn't exactly peer-reviewed or anything so far as I can tell. It appears to just be the creation of a Wikipedia user, but that doesn't lessen its usefulness or general accuracy, in my opinion. And we do have natural cause to be cautious of a corpse, or, more specifically, cautious because of the presence of a corpse. It's not necessarily about fearing the dead, but fearing what made them that way. Keeping your head on a swivel in case the killer is still around. Having said that, by and large, we aren't exactly fond of looking upon the deceased either. Yes, there are exceptions, and I'm not here to judge anyone's morbid fascinations, so long as they're harmless and not disrespectful. You guys hear the topics I cover, I'm certainly in no position to judge even if I wanted to, as I have stated previously. And living in certain environments, or being of a certain disposition, can desensitize you to the sight of death, to the point that you're at most casual around corpses. I'd wager the average person listening to this, however, would not be cavalier if, let's say, they were walking down the street, even in broad daylight, and among friends, and saw someone leaning against the wall who looked like they were just resting. Until you got close enough to realize they weren't leaning. They were propped, and they were not anyone anymore. They were what someone used to be. In the previous episode, I talked about premature burial, a living person being where the dead should be. It's unsettling, to say the least. But what about when the dead are not where they are supposed to be? 
What if we discover a dead person among the living? Many stories of revenge from beyond the grave exist across several mediums. Indeed, I just spent part of last episode focusing on live burials in Golden Age horror comics, and I could use those same comics from that same era as the focal point of stories in which corpses rise to murder their murderers. Before Romero-style zombies roamed in droves, attacking anyone they came across, the walking, decaying dead might arise just one at a time with a singular purpose. Find the person who wronged them, and end them, preferably in a way that matches or inverts the crime that they committed. Decades after the Golden Age, another comic would grant the world one of its most famous modern revenants. Eric Draven, The Crow, a character created by James Obar and further immortalized by the late Brandon Lee. The pale vigilante with his black lips, black eyeliner, and black hair is a classic painted corpse resembling the goth makeup influenced by the character Cesare from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Cesare's image appeared on the cover of what is considered by many to be the first gothic rock single, Bella Lugosi is Dead, by the band Browhouse. And it's worth noting here that Cesare himself is not actually a living corpse, but a sleepwalker controlled by a corrupt mentalist. Nonetheless, his quote-unquote death-like sleep has lasted 23 years, according to his handler, Caligari. And the confines he's kept in are less cabinet than coffin. Draven's slightly more stylized appearance also calls to mind a not-quite-finished or more minimalist version of sugar skull makeup that appears on so many faces during Dia de los Muertos festivities. The Sugar Skull itself is inspired by the figure La Catrina, created by artist Jose Posada and further popularized by Diego Rivera. Katrina, in her original appearance, was part of Posada's series of critical and satirical illustrations. She debuted in a piece titled Remate de Calaveras Alegres y Sandungueras, translating very roughly to The Auction of Happy Skulls and Party Girls. In this, as well as her later appearance in Rivera's mural Dream of a Sunday Afternoon at Alameda Park, and on through any later depictions, Katrina looks like a skeleton trying to disguise itself with fancy garments, which was the point initially. Per the book The Day of the Dead, a visual compendium by Chloe Sayer, Posada's cartoon targeted certain servant and working-class young women who pretended to be of the wealthier class by wearing clothes that they really could not afford. Worth noting here as well was the application of skin-lightening makeup meant to hide indigenous ancestry, appealing to a standard of beauty rooted in the idea that paler skin, even white as bone or white as an exsanguinated corpse, reflected the status of someone who didn't have to go outside and endure the darkening effects of sunlight, unlike working people. The piece's accompanying poem captured Posada's opinion of these efforts that they are futile as they are, like all of us, destined to become, quote, deformed skulls, and will take with them into the grave, quote, finery and blouses, heeled slippers and corsets. Posada introduced Katrina, then nameless, as a grinning, somewhat malformed skull, sporting a large hat choked with extra decor, and she even has a few frills adorning the sides of her skull for good measure. Later, in Rivera's dream of a Sunday afternoon, she's front and center, 
the sole skeleton standing among the living, her splendid hat atop her head. A large, colorfully feathered rattlesnake boa draped around her neck, a reference to the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl per DiegoRivera.org. She also has a gold belt that references Aztec astrology and a chain for her eyeglasses that hangs down to where her knees should be. Many people dress up as some facsimile of La Catrina for certain occasions. But in my admittedly limited research, I didn't see anyone try to replicate this exact look. I wonder whether it's a matter of that kind of replication not being the point, or if that specific appearance is sacred to some degree, or if it's just a matter of people not feeling like they could quite pull that one off. La Catrina and the associated sugar skull face paint are interesting for myriad reasons. But for the subject of this episode, they are particularly interesting as examples of living corpses that are now meant to be embraced and celebrated, and are part of a tradition meant to help people cope with and understand death. And listen, I'm not the right guy to get into even an ankle-deep history of Dia de los Muertos, its importance and its meaning. But I know enough to understand that La Catrina's appearance, morbid though it may be to some, was never really designed to frighten anyone. Although, having said that, if you look closely at her image in Sunday Afternoon, the mural, her fangs are prominent, whereas in the original picture by Posada, they were non-existent. And along the bottom row of her teeth, where the bottom lip would be were she not such a stark representative of the undead, I'm pretty sure that's blood. From Spanish influences that merged with and were taken from native cultures in the New World, we go to the French influence upon people taken from their native land and into the New World, where we find another well-dressed corpse, or at least a spirit or deity wearing a well-dressed corpse costume. Baron Samdi, the Vodou Lord of the Dead in the cemetery, among other things, is a skeletal form, although sometimes he's more fleshed out and just has a skull or half-skull for a face. He wears a top hat, black tail coat and pants, sometimes has cotton stuffed up his nostrils, mimicking the preparation of a corpse in Haitian culture, and is frequently seen with a cigar or some liquor or both. He is a divine being who enjoys the standard vices of the living, smoking, drinking, and sex. This can be good to know since he might require payment of you to keep your body rotting in the ground as opposed to letting it rise to become a mindless zombie, even though, from my again admittedly limited understanding, zombies are detrimental to his business. Nonetheless, as a gift, some rum or some good food or even some coffee might suffice. But his moods can be unpredictable. While he's not as outright hostile as his colleague, Baron Criminel, his power is fearful enough on its own. He even calls the shots in determining who actually gets to die. If Samdi were to refuse to dig your grave, you won't die. Which some might view as the ultimate blessing, but that could just as easily be a terrible curse. The idea of someone who should be dead remaining alive does not always involve a reanimated corpse returning to life. Sometimes people are refused the opportunity to die. The torment of this is sometimes presented as psychological in fiction. An immortal person outlives their immediate family, their own children and grandchildren, and beyond. 
to say nothing of friends and lovers. And this takes a toll. They outlive their desire to live, become so bored with what the world can offer them that they long for death, but can never experience that escape. This shows up in fiction and lore with various characters who are cursed to wander the earth forever. Recently, the underseen film He Never Died explores this well. The 19th century gave birth to the folktale Jack of the Lantern, the man who was too sinful to go to heaven, but whose deception of the devil ensured that hell would never have his soul either. Barred from both eternal paradise and damnation, Jack is left as a restless, undying nomad, searching the world for a place that will have him so he can finally rest. I find these kinds of stories fascinating in part because a part of me thinks I wouldn't run into the issue of getting so bored with life or feeling so restless from roaming that I would lose the healthy fear of death. I do think the negatives I mentioned would all be unpleasant, but I feel like it would take an extraordinarily long time for me personally to feel like I've not just done it all, but also done it all so often that I find the alternative to living more appealing. I do think the aforementioned He Never Died does a good job of at least making the character ostensibly several thousand years old at least, as opposed to the few hundred years or less that's enough to drive some of these characters to find death desirable. For some of those characters, I think they should probably just open their minds up a little, find some more hobbies. They probably haven't come close to exhausting all the cool and interesting things there are to do in the world. They also might want to count their considerable blessings. It could be much worse. At least whatever stuck them with immortality also pressed pause on their aging. In the most overtly horrific examples of the ever-living, that isn't a package deal. In Greek mythology, Tithonus, the mortal lover of the goddess Eos, was granted eternal life by Zeus at Eos's request. Unfortunately, she did not ask that he never age, and Zeus, never missing an opportunity to be king of the jerks, gave her exactly what she asked for and apparently didn't allow for any modification to the request. Tithonus lives and ages until, quote, he could not move nor lift his limbs, and he was then left in a room by Eos where he, quote, babbles endlessly. In some later tellings, he is finally granted the mercy of being transformed into a cicada, in which state he continues to beg for death. In Jonathan Swift's classic Gulliver's Travels, the eponymous traveler comes upon a race of people called Strudbrugs. These unfortunate souls are incapable of dying and fully capable of experiencing the inevitable ravages of aging. In their nation, when they turn 80, they are declared legally dead. All of their possessions are passed on to their heirs, and they are forbidden from having a job or doing anything to earn income. If they are still in a marriage, that is automatically dissolved. They are not allowed to own property. If they are not members of a wealthy family, they become charges of the state's inadequate welfare system and typically have to resort to begging. Depression at their circumstances understandably sets in. As they continue to get older, they become susceptible to, quote, all the follies and infirmities of other old men. In other words, their mind and body continues to deteriorate. They lose their sight, they lose hearing, lose their teeth, lose their memory. They lose every piece of their health. And there is zero hope of things ever reversing course or of their lives ever ending. 
Amazingly, my next example of this state is less depressing and horrifying than the previous two due to its brevity. But for all we know, had the mesmerist not granted him the release of death, Mr. Valdemar, the subject of Edgar Allan Poe's story, might have never mercifully dissolved into a disgusting mass of decomposition seven months after he should have died. In the intervening period of unnatural prolonged life, Ernest Valdemar no longer breathes or bleeds and thankfully seems to be in a somewhat unconscious state through much of what happens after his intended death. When he is awakened one last time, however, the voice he manages to push through lips and jaws tightened by rigor mortis is urgent. For God's sake, I say to you that I am dead. In the midst of this declaration, he pleads to be put out of his misery one way or another either returned to a state of unawareness or awakened in a way that sets him free and lets his body catch up on all the rotting it hasn't been permitted to do for over half a year. Dia de los Muertos, as mentioned, is in part a celebration designed to help us accept and cope with the idea of death, whether it's our own mortality or that of our loved ones. And also, as mentioned, Baron Samdi has, among his rights and duties, the ability to either grant you death or allow you to be returned to life, enslaved and powerless. Baked into each of these things is the idea that death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. It is indeed natural and healthy to fear death. But the idea of becoming undead in one form or another is one that goes back to ancient times. Irrational though it may be, given that it's never been a realistic threat or option for any of us, it is nonetheless something that seems to have been on our mind for about as long as stories have been told about things we should be afraid of. The fear of being denied a peaceful end. As much as many of us would love to prolong our lifespans beyond what is known to be possible, I'm raising my hand to be counted among those many, we'd all like to do this on the most ideal terms. None of us would like to be Tithonus or the Strolldbrugs or Ernest Valdemar. I'd love to live a mythically long life, but not if the bulk of it is spent in hideous suffering trapped in a vessel that is cadaverous at best, and at its worst, something that would make you long for the days when you were at least a relatively fresh living corpse and registered somewhere on the uncanny valley, instead of being completely off that graph. To say nothing of the idea of being brought back as a shell of yourself, or less, stuck in a stinking sack of spoilage that should have stayed buried. Compared to that fate, well, as a wise old Mainer once said, dead is better. Pet Cemetery is one of Stephen King's scariest novels, which is saying something. It is hardly wanting for horrifying moments and characters. For me, even more than anything else in the book, including the resurrection of Baby Gage and all of its aftermath. The short story within the story recounted in chapter 39 is what I think of when I consider the worst that could happen when a dead person is brought back to life. The story of a reborn Timothy Baderman. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The ultra-truncated version of Timothy Baderman's story that appears in the first film adaptation of Pet Cemetery comes nowhere near doing the story justice. If you've never treated yourself to the novel, I encourage you to bookmark your spot in the podcast now and come back to it later after reading the book. Go buy it at your favorite local bookstore or borrow a digital copy from the Internet Archive's online library, presuming it's not on one of your shelves already. You could even just skip straight to the aforementioned chapter 39 and just read that if you want. It works decently as its own short story, especially if you already have a general idea of what Pet Cemetery is about, so you're not confused about the whole dead man rising phenomenon within that world. Or, if needed, you can read chapter 38 as well to set the stage. As part of the novel, the Baderman tragedy is somewhat superfluous. The character isn't mentioned by name until more than halfway through the book, by which time it has already been established that any formerly living thing buried in the cemetery soil beyond the deadfall, land which has been evil since even before the native Micmacs lived there, will be brought back to life, and it will be changed in a terrible way. Lewis Creed buries his daughter's pet cat church there to spare her the pain of losing her beloved companion. The cat clearly comes back different. A little dead is how Lewis describes it later. It smells of death, the aroma so strong and off-putting that the little girl won't let it spend the night in her bedroom anymore. Worse, though, the formerly loving and lively but now hostile church has taken to killing birds and rodents, not to eat them, just to torture and mutilate them, as if for sport. This isn't exactly behavior unbecoming a cat, but it is behavior unbecoming of this cat. Other omens make it apparent throughout the story that burying a human being in the forbidden, demonically influenced section of the pet cemetery will go just as bad, if not worse. So, whether for the reader's sake or for the sake of the characters, the Baderman story isn't strictly necessary. It's much too effective to leave off the page, however. Timothy Baderman died in World War II. His body was shipped home to a grieving father already heartbroken from having lost his wife. No sane, loving father is equipped to unexpectedly lose their son to violence, particularly a son who was legally a year too young to be enlisted in the armed forces. But if it's possible to be among the least equipped to handle such a loss, Bill Baderman would qualify. Even if his story before his son's death didn't make this evident, his actions after Timothy's death would. Judson Judd Crandall, the fatherly figure trying to talk Lewis Creed out of even considering using the cemetery to resurrect his youngest child, Gage, tells the story of Timothy Baderman because, to his knowledge, 
Timothy is the only person who has been buried in and revived by the cemetery. Although, as it turns out, Judd doesn't think Timmy is really the one who came back. He thinks something else inhabits the young man's body. There seems to be no way he isn't at least partially right about this. Timothy is not the same after he comes back. And we're not talking about a minor change. Bill Baderman tries to convince himself Timmy's changes are a product of shell shock. But as devastating a condition as that can be, it really can't explain the ways in which his son has changed. The way he moves, the way he speaks, and the secrets he knows. As with certain other undead characters, it isn't disquieting enough to have the dead simply return to life. The state of the dead often punctuates the horror. Romero-style zombies tend to be stiff and lurching. Even the earlier bastardized voodoo style of zombie from early Hollywood, comic books, and radio serials had a lifelessness that led the word zombie to become a useful metaphor for someone who appears to be in a mindless stupor. Timmy Baderman is no exception. He moves strangely and awkwardly, in a way that, when you think of it, should make him less menacing in a practical sense. The simple act of turning around almost caused him to fall over on one occasion, and he looked like a drunk man trying to do an about-face, according to the sole witness. If it came down to it, I'd rather fight or try to flee from a guy who moves like that than one who's more agile, at least in theory. The problem is having to first figure out the nature of the threat. The scariest thing about most modern movie and literary zombies isn't simply that they're on the attack, it's that they can spread their condition to others. The zombie bite isn't so frightening because it might rip out your throat, but because if it just breaks the skin on your pinky finger, you're dead anyway. Fortunately, Timothy is not that style of zombie. Unfortunately, he might be something worse. Many zombie stories have to exist in a world where nobody has heard of zombies before. I've seen some people get some mileage out of likening the coronavirus pandemic to a zombie apocalypse, indicating that humanity has proven themselves to be as unprepared, foolish, and selfish as the characters in zombie movies. I get the point behind that, but the thing is, strange as it may sound, I'd still rather an attempted zombie apocalypse jump off than what we've gone through since 2020. Not accounting for the possibility of many of us potentially losing our minds at the sight or even the idea of the dead returning to life or a zombie virus turning people into unthinking killing machines, I think we'd still fare better because zombies don't have the insidious benefit of being unseen and hard to detect like an airborne virus that can be spread even through asymptomatic carriers. Romero-style zombies in particular, while terrifying, really seem like they'd have a tough time overrunning the world or even a city, in my opinion. Maybe it's because I live in the States, and in particular Texas, and we've got an absolute embarrassment of guns and bullets and would probably kill more people in the crossfire than the zombies could hope to kill during their attempted rampage. But I think even places that don't have much in the way of guns would probably have a lot of success keeping the zombie threat contained. In no small part because we've all been exposed to ample amounts of zombie fiction, and unlike, say, aggressive aliens with advanced technology, they don't have any traits that make them superior combatants. 
I don't want to derail the conversation here too much by getting into more specifics, but I welcome you to do a search for reasons why a zombie uprising would fail, check the arguments and counter-arguments, and feel free to agree or disagree with me. Anyway, I think Timothy Baderman, or whatever was wearing his body, also understood the limits of a conventional zombie attack, and so he doesn't try to fight. He's not simply a zombie. As Judd says, there's something going on behind his eyes. Judd doesn't want to call it thinking, possibly because he's just afraid of the idea of this dead thing plotting and scheming, but it's definitely processing information in some capacity, and it has more information than it should, and knows how to weaponize this for petty glee and psychological torment, if nothing else. Baderman, in a sense, is like the modern version of a troll, saying cruel, hurtful things to emotionally injure people, and maybe even to see those injuries turn physical as a byproduct of what he says. The big difference between Baderman and the average callous fool on the internet, however, is that he's actually telling indisputable truths. As damaging as lies can be, or as damaging as intentionally misused facts can be, a litany of horrible truths might have more power. This is ultimately what Judd and his friends confront when they come to tell Bill Baderman that his resurrected son is an abomination, and that he has to do something about him before things get really bad. When Baderman tells one man, George Anderson, that his beloved adult grandson doesn't actually love him, he's just waiting for the old man to die so he can get his inheritance. It's mean, but if it was a lie, it wouldn't be anything more than just a mean thing to say. The fact that it can be taken as truth makes it far more cutting. And how is it known to be true? Well, such a thing is really unknowable, or at least can't be proven. But when you take that statement with the things that can be proven, that Timothy says even though he shouldn't know them, such as the fact that George Anderson has no inheritance to give because he lost it all in 1938, that makes it hard to shrug off anything else he says as simply a lie. Judd's marriage would have been tested had Timothy been able to tell Judd's wife about his secret, that he visited sex workers from time to time. Had she known that truth, she would not have left, Judd believes, but some significant part of her would have died inside. Baderman does the most damage, however, when he tells Judd's friend Alan that Alan's wife, several years his junior, is sleeping with one of her co-workers, something Alan possibly should have known given it was town gossip. But hearing it directly from someone he knows is telling the truth makes it undeniable in a way that is far different from perhaps catching a whisper of it before people have noticed he has entered a room and stopped talking about it. He reacts to this news by committing the indefensible act of domestic violence, and it's easy to believe that this is what Timothy Baderman wanted. This is the power he has because he's not just a mindless zombie. He's at a deeper, more disturbing place in the uncanny valley. If you told me my city could either be overrun by a hundred shuffling, groaning, undead flesh eaters, or a hundred Timothy Batermans telling everyone's dirtiest secrets to everyone else within earshot, I think I would take my chance with the conventional zombies. Again, I just don't think they'd be that hard to deal with in reality, especially where I live. Something like Baderman, however, a thinking thing might be able to do more harm indirectly and without even touching anyone in just a handful of seconds and sentences. In the end, 
I think Baderman represents one of the biggest reasons why civilizations have long opted to dispose of the dead in a way that puts them out of sight. Bury them, burn them, anything so we don't have to look at them. We don't necessarily have to hide them from sight to sanitarily dispose of them. Preservation and display is an option for the dead, one exercised by the Capuchin Crypt in Rome. There, the remains of approximately 3,700 long-dead human beings are arranged and available for all to see. Unsurprisingly, such exhibition hasn't caught on with most of the rest of the world. Very few of us would want to see such a thing on a regular basis, because, ultimately, the one truth that any dead body tells anyone who sees it is that this fate awaits us all. Regardless of just about any belief system you may have, if nothing else, this is very likely what's to become of your body, at least for a moment. And I hate being the morbid guy. I felt a little pinhead of sickness from just writing those last two sentences. Contemplating mortality is among my most hated things to do. But it's nonetheless a truth that people like me, at least, treat almost like a secret, and that a corpse tells us we'll have to someday face despite how much we may not want to. And, as uncanny as can be, a dead body can tell us all of that without opening its mouth, taking a breath, or saying a word. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Fears podcast, written, produced, and narrated by Johnny Compton. For transcripts and research notes, if applicable for each episode, visit healthyfears.com. I try to mention my most significant resources throughout each episode as I feel that's appropriate, but in case I missed any, thank you too. The book, The Day of the Dead, A Visual Compendium, written by Chloe Sayer. The website, diegorivera.org. And although everything that I at least think I know about Baron Samdi came from information I've accumulated here and there over several years from assorted sources that I can no longer remember, I do want to credit the YouTube channel Chronicles of Zoe for having the best content on the subject of the Baron that I encountered while trying to make sure I wasn't misremembering anything or just making stuff up. If you're interested in my writing, my publication credits, and links to some stories can be found at johnnycompton.com. My debut novel, The Spite House, is currently scheduled to be released by Tor Nightfire on February 7th, 2023. By all means, feel free to set aside some money in your book budget to be ready for it. The subject of next week's episode is Control, or Lack Thereof for anyone who is interested. Until then, remember, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Which means that if they kill you, silver lining, hell has its no vacancy sign on, so at least you're not going there. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.